Well, we've, uh, like we've been saying the last couple of weeks, we've entered a new section of Matthew. Um, remember, Matthew is built around teaching sections by Jesus to his disciples, but then surrounding those teaching sections are narrative that carry forward the storyline. And so, the beginning of chapter 19, we've really entered that new section of narrative. And what's interesting about, especially chapters 19 through 20, is that Jesus has encounters with different people. Different people approach him. So you have the Pharisees approach him, and then he addresses their concerns. But each time he addresses that whoever approaches him, their concerns, he also takes an opportunity to teach his disciples. And really, what he teaches his disciples is um, inverted to invert the values of the culture around them. You see, he's addressing these groups that have values or they've twisted God's law or God's purposes in such a way um, that it's all distorted. But what the reality is, is the disciples have lived and grown up in that culture. They've imbibed it. It's become part of them in a sense. And so Jesus not only needs to correct uh, people like the Pharisees or the rich young guy that we saw last week, but he needs to also correct the disciples and how they're thinking about things. Because often, uh, or as we see, they are thinking the same way as those around them. And so the big kind of overarching question that I keep bringing up for us all uh, is it's the same for us. We live in a culture, and whether we like it or not, we breathe in and breathe out the cultural air, the atmosphere, and we are affected. We are affected. And so we have to look at the scriptures and see uh, what cultural values have we absorbed that Jesus wants to invert in our lives. See, Jesus wants to, when there is a value where we've absorbed to the culture that, and it stands in opposition to where he is heading and where the kingdom of God is heading, where the kingdom culture is heading, then that value needs to be inverted. We need to live opposite, backwards from the way the culture around us lives. And so we've talked about a number of topics. We started with uh, marriage, divorce, remarriage. We started with that as Jesus addressed the Pharisees. Last week, we dealt with the issue of self-reliance, uh, and that cultural value was a cultural value then. It was a cultural val- it's a cultural value now, and, uh, and rather than self-reliance, we need to be utterly dependent on God's grace, coming to Jesus with no pretense, no standing, looking to him for blessing. And what we do this week Still connected to that episode with the rich young man, but it turns a corner. That's why we're starting at verse 27. And there's a different issue at work from verse 27 in chapter 19 all the way through chapter 20, verse 16. And the principle and the cultural value that's really at work and at play is this. The harder you work, the more you deserve. That is the value that Jesus is attacking uh, for his disciples. He's teaching them. He's inverting it. That is the cultural value, and we would say that's, uh, that sounds like a good value. The harder you work, the more you deserve. Uh, work hard so that you can uh, uh, earn what you deserve in that sense, and yet Jesus inverts this value. He inverts this value. He says the kingdom culture it has an inverted sense of what payment and reward looks like, and so that's where we're headed this morning. And The big idea for the text is this, as followers of Jesus, look forward to your reward in the renewed creation, focusing on the Father's goodness, not human ranking. As followers of Jesus, look forward to your reward in the renewed creation, focusing on the Father's goodness, not human ranking. 
And so first, what we're going to look at in verses 27 through 29 in chapter 19 is this idea, look forward to your reward in the renewed creation. Look at verse 27. Look at verse 27. Then Peter said in reply. Now notice, Peter's speaking. um, He's introduced. uh, But he notice he's speaking in reply to something that Jesus had just said. Now what did Jesus just said? Well, most recently he had said that um, it's impossible. Effectively, he said it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and and uh, the disciples are like, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus affirms, no one can if you're only talking about uh, what man can do. With, God, uh, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But even before that, if you go up a little bit uh, of a ways, when Jesus is still talking to the rich young guy, remember what Jesus called of discipleship to him was. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, this is the rich young guy that we talked about last week, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, if you'd be complete, remember he said, I I still lack something. And Jesus says, well, if you want to be complete, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And the idea was, is that Jesus is calling that rich young guy to discipleship. He's calling him to repentance, and repentance for him looks like uh, uh, getting rid of his wealth, liquidating his assets, giving it to the poor because his heart's all intertwined within it, and uh, he will have treasure in heaven and come follow Jesus. Jesus will circumcise his heart, change his heart such that he can obey the commandments as Jesus called him to do. But you notice that, that, that idea that he has to give up all that he has and he'll um, follow Jesus, and he'll have treasure in heaven. So what Peter's going to respond to, Peter's not just responding to what Jesus most just recently said, he's responding to the situation with the rich young guy, and we'll see that as we go. Look at verse 27 again. Then Peter said in reply, See, or behold, we have left everything and followed you. See, he's mirroring what he is saying with what Jesus just called the rich young guy to do. Uh, if you look back at chapter 4, when the disciples were initially called, they're, you know, mending their nets, they're doing things in relation to business, and Jesus just comes and says, follow me, and they drop everything right there. They leave their livelihoods, and they follow Jesus. So what Peter says is true. You can think also of Matthew in chapter 9. He's a tax collector, and what um, he is sitting at his tax booth, Jesus says, come follow me. He drops everything. He drops his livelihood. He drops whatever um, uh, injustice he was doing as a tax collector, and he follows Jesus. And so Peter sees this, and he speaks up on behalf of the twelve and says, well, we have done what the, the rich young man didn't do. We left everything, and we followed you. And then what does he say? What then will we have? And where is he picking up on? Well, you notice what Jesus said to the rich young guy in verse 21. He said, uh, uh, you sell what you have, give it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So in connection with following Jesus, uh, Jesus had promised the rich young guy, if you become my disciple, and you follow through in repentance and faith and trust and following me, you will have treasure in heaven. So Peter picks up on that and says, well, wait a minute, he didn't do it, but we did. He didn't do it, but we did. So what do we get? What do we get? Now you hear that and you're like, ooh, that doesn't seem like a good question to ask. What do we get out of it? But 
But notice how Jesus responds. Jesus does not respond with a rebuke. He does not respond with, what are you thinking about, Peter? What are you talking about? Uh, You're so mercenary. What are you doing? He doesn't respond that way. Verse 28, what does he do? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, what is Jesus doing and talking about? Well, he's answering Peter, and he's telling them, here's what you're going to get. Here's what you're going to get. Now, notice, this is directed to the twelve. This is directed to the twelve. It's clear, very clear, Peter's speaking up on behalf of the twelve that are following Jesus in his earthly ministry, and then Jesus responds to the twelve. And he says, here's what you're going to get. Now, what, does, what is Jesus talking about? What's he talking about? First, let's address this term, in the, um, in the new world, is how the ESV puts it. I'm not sure how your translation puts it. It might say the resurrection or the renewal or something like that. This word is, um, has the idea of renewal or rebirth. In fact, the only other time it's used in the New Testament is used in Titus to talk about the rebirth, the regeneration that happens to an individual when they are saved. But that's not how it's being used here. Here, it is talking about, uh, it just talks about it briefly, in the renewal. We could translate it that way, in the renewal. Well, what's he talking about? Well, it's that reality that we talked about last week that when you think about Uh, how the scriptures talk about eternal life and where God is going uh, with history, where it is going is not in ethereal heaven where everyone's going to be on a cloud playing a harp. Where history is going is a uh, beautiful, renewed creation. So you think about where uh, things started in the garden. Uh, God placed man in a garden to... Uh, hear from him, to obey him, to know God face to face in a beautiful, uh, lush garden. And man had work to do. And what you see is, though the fall happens and man is kicked out of the garden, uh, everything that God does in redemptive history is ultimately to move back to the garden, to move back to the same circumstances and ultimately better, to a new Eden, to a renewed creation. So if you were to compare Genesis 1 through 3 with Revelation 21 and 22, you would see a lot of similarities. And you would see at the end in what we could call the kingdom or eternal life or life, Jesus uses those terms interchangeably, you would see man dwelling physically in a renewed creation on a land, enjoying God's presence, obeying God, working in a garden, in a place, a physical, tangible, concrete reality. That is what Jesus is alluding to with this word, the regeneration, the regeneration. So Jesus is looking ahead, talking about, okay, let's talk about the kingdom. That's very clear because he says, all right, the same time when we're talking about the regeneration, we're also talking about the same time frame when the Son of Man will sit upon his throne of glory. So we're talking about the Son of Man exercising dominion, exercising dominion over the whole world, over a renewed creation. 
And here, Jesus is pulling on an Old Testament idea. You see that title, Son of Man, and we've seen it multiple times in the Gospel of Matthew. You see it throughout the Gospels a great deal. And uh, we've said that that idea of the Son of Man, it starts early in the Bible with the idea of a human being, uh, but, one, uh, but a human being or human beings as weak, as frail. Uh, but as time goes on, especially as you get to Ezekiel, you find that Ezekiel, he's called Son of Man, but he acts um, as a representative on behalf, on behalf of weak humanity, and specifically a weak Israel. But then once you get to Daniel 7, which is the culmination of that movement in the Old Testament, we're, um, talking about the Son of Man, you see a representative human being, the Son of Man, who is now not a weak, he does stand in relation to weak human beings, but he the Son of Man, the ultimate Son of Man, stands as a glorious one who will inherit dominion, just as Adam was supposed to do in the garden. So turn back to Daniel 7, because that is indeed what Jesus is alluding to. Turn back to Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is a big backdrop for the Gospels. It is a big backdrop for um, uh, Matthew in particular. Now, I'm, we're not going to read all of Daniel 7. I encourage you, um, you go ahead and Later today, spend some time, read Daniel 7, just to get a little bit more context. But basically, the situation is this. Daniel, God gives Daniel a vision, and he sees this vision of these four beasts coming out of the sea. And they're terrifying and horrible and ugly and uh, devastating beasts. And these beasts represent different kings and kingdoms, different kings and kingdoms, different empires in the world, if you will. And um, they, um, they, uh, they bring destruction until we see this in verse 9. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones, now notice the plural there, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days, referring to God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and books were open. So what's the idea? It seems as though the picture is God comes to earth. I think this scene is not in heaven. I think this scene is on earth, because these beasts that come out of the sea are on earth. And then what happens? God comes to earth, which is a refrain that you see throughout the Old Testament, and God comes in judgment. God comes in judgment on these horrific kingdoms. He's going to execute judgment. But in connection with that, if you drop down to verse 13, we also see this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, one like a son of man. So he's a human being, but he's also different. And we see how he's different here. And he came, the son of man came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here, this son of man, normally in the Bible, the son of man is weak and helpless. Uh, here, this is a strong son of man, and he is doing what Adam did not do. He is reigning under God, given God's uh, stewardship authority to reign over the whole world, all nations, peoples, and languages. It's the kingdom. 
It's the kingdom that Jesus has been speaking about in Matthew. But what's interesting about this, usually we might just read 7, 13, and 14 to talk about the Son of Man, but if you go a little bit further, drop down to verse 21, because even as the scene is unfolding, it's not just about the Son of Man. It's not just about the Son of Man and Him taking reign. Look at verse 21. As I looked, this horn, now the horn is like this ultimate kind of evil ruler of the fourth kingdom, so that's what he's referring to. As I look, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And as you go on, if, if you were to read further in the chapter, you would find that there's this kingdom and there's the individual exalted son of man who's going to take uh, reign but the reign is not just for him, it's for the holy ones, the saints of the Most High. We would say it like this, believers, those who are saved, have a reign with the Son of Man. And that comports completely with what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 19. He is talking to his disciples, and they're asking, well, the twelve in particular, well, what are we going to get? And Jesus is like, okay, let's talk about the regeneration. Let's talk about the renewal. Let's talk about the new heavens and the new earth. When the Son of Man sits upon his throne of glory, well, what's going to happen? You also will sit upon 12 thrones judging. Did you notice in Daniel 7 that language of judgment being given to the saints of the Most High? Meaning what? that the saints, the holy ones, those who belong to God, are going to execute judgment along with the Son of Man for the nations. And that's exactly the reality that Jesus talks about. You, the twelve, will also sit upon twelve thrones, remember the plural thrones in Daniel 7, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And that word there for judgment, it is normally used in Matthew to talk about judgment, meaning that as we saw in Daniel 7, there are evil kingdoms and there are those who are in opposition to God, to the Ancient of Days, and to the Son of Man, and these nations need to be judged. But what's amazing here in Matthew 19 is Jesus saying Israel needs to be judged. Israel needs to be judged, and 12, you are the ones who are going to bear the responsibility in the kingdom to execute that judgment for Israel. So what is he promising them? What is he promising the 12? He's promising them status and position and re uh, uh, responsibility in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, he's doing that in direct answer to Peter's question with respect to the 12. But he broadens it in verse 29. He continues, And everyone who left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, because of my name, will receive a hundredfold. And what is Jesus saying there? We've already seen in Matthew, say Matthew 10 is a good example of this, where Jesus says, if you follow me uh, as disciples, then there, is going to be, um, there are going to be those in your own family those closest to you who are going to oppose you. And uh, even more generally, if we think about what Jesus' call to discipleship is like, Matthew 16, 21 and following, 
um, Matthew 16, 24 and following, uh, no, uh, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself, repudiate self, take up his cross and follow me. You can't come and follow Jesus without giving up something, without repudiating self, without following him. And here Jesus just cites a representative list of the things that are the nearest and dearest to people in that time, and even we might say in our time. He talks about wealth, houses, and fields, but he also talks about family, father and mother, brothers, sisters, wife, children. Those are the most precious things that Uh, And we understand that. We know that. Those are the most precious things to us in this world. So Jesus cites this representative list, and he's saying, anyone who's left these things because of my name, not just left them, period, but because of me, because of following me, there's a rift in the family. You have to, um, for whatever reason, uh, lose possessions. He's saying, you're going to receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, here, Jesus uses that phrase, eternal life, which the rich young man had asked about last week. Remember, the rich young man comes up and says, what good must I do to have eternal life? And we, say the way, we said the way Matthew and Jesus use those terms, eternal life, life, and entering the kingdom are all the same thing. They're all the same thing, talking about the same reality of being on a renewed land, physically resurrected in a new Eden, a new creation, enjoying God, obeying him. That's what eternal life is. But notice what happens here and what Jesus is saying. He's got two categories. He's got category of inheriting eternal life and receiving a hundredfold. Meaning what? Everyone who follows Jesus, they're going to have to give up something. They're going to have to deny themselves and follow Jesus. Everyone who follows Jesus is going to have eternal life. But Jesus is also saying that you had to give up something to follow me, and whatever you gave up, uh, God's going to give you a hundredfold back. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying... um, you know, same exact kind. So I don't think he's saying, if you gave up a father, you're going to get a hundred fathers. doesn't make sense, right? But what is he trying to say? That God's payback, God's reward for following Jesus is beyond whatever you could have possibly lost to follow Jesus. So what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about two realities. One, inheriting eternal life, entering the kingdom, we would say, and two, connected with that, inseparable from that, receiving reward. The way that Jesus has been talking in Matthew, the way the scriptures talk, there are rewards for believers in the new heavens and the new earth. There are rewards for believers in the kingdom, and that is what Jesus is alluding to here. Different people get different amounts of reward because different people have left different things. Everyone's going to inherit eternal life, but in that eternal life on a new heavens and a new earth, a renewed earth, there is going to be a different reward given to different people. The 12 are going to sit on 12 thrones. That's different than what I'm going to receive. uh, I'm not going to receive that. And so Jesus is talking about both realities all at once. So Jesus is answering Peter's question, but he's not only answering the question for the 12, he's answering the question for any disciple who is going to follow him. 
which is very surprising with how we think. We don't like to talk about, often in Christian circles, reward or uh, anything like that. Why? Because we think it smacks of works. We think it says that, well, uh, I've merited something before God, therefore God's going to reward me. That's not how Jesus is talking. Because we already saw last week in 1926, um, no 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 one can enter life at all apart from God's doing. And what Jesus starts to do for us, and he's going to do it more in the parable to the follow, is to deprogram humans from thinking that just because you have eternal life and just because you're even going to have a reward in eternal life, that's not because of human merit. That's because of God's grace and generosity. And yet the eternal life and the reward stands. It will happen. And what is Jesus using this for? He's using it to motivate his followers. This is motivation. You want to follow Jesus? Look forward to the reward. Look forward to the reward. God is not opposed at all from us looking forward to reward. The reward is inheriting eternal life, which is in a renewed earth with responsibility, not sitting on a cloud stroking a harp, but working to God's honor and glory and at the centerpiece in the new heavens and the new earth is enjoying God himself face to face for all eternity and reward and responsibility. The 12 are going to sit on 12 thrones. I don't know what everyone else is going to do, but even as we saw in Daniel 7, the saints are going to rule with the king, the son of man, Jesus, in the future. And Jesus is holding that out as motivation to follow him. You're going to sacrifice now but the payoff is going to be greater than you could have possibly imagined. Not because of your merit, but because of God's grace. How do you conceive of eternal life? We talked about this last week, but I want to bring it up again because it's very much right here in the text. Do you conceive of eternal life as ethereal, floaty, out there, harpy, sort of disembodied, whatever land? Friend, if that's your conception of eternal life, it is woefully inadequate because that's not how God talks about eternal life. God talks about eternal life in concrete terms, a renewed creation with lush things that are beyond what we can imagine, working to God's honor and glory, enjoying God, enjoying food and fellowship for all eternity, that is eternal life with the triune God at the center of it all. And Jesus wants to look forward to his kingdom on the renewed earth where we will have responsibility in ruling over creation for God's glory. That was what humanity was designed to do. Genesis 1, God created male and female to rule and have dominion over the earth. We will do that in the future under Jesus' reign. Now think about that in connection with the gospel. Some, excuse me, uh, a lot of times the way we present the gospel is this. God is holy, and uh, I am a sinner. uh, People are sinners. And because God is holy, uh, and because I'm a sinner, God will judge me, and I deserve his wrath. And uh, Jesus came to die in the place of sinners, such that you repent and place your faith in him. 
He will uh, save you from God's wrath, and you will live forever. The end. That's how we present the gospel. Now, is that true? Yes, as far as it goes. But it is not describing how God describes the ark from Genesis to Revelation of his redemptive work. God is not merely redeeming individuals. He is redeeming a people for himself. And he's not only redeeming a people for himself, he's redeeming the whole fallen creation for himself. Do you present the gospel that way? Because I, I, just, I just think of, you know, our culture loves epic stories. They have no problem whatsoever of sitting for hours upon hours and watching episode upon episode of epic stories. But when we present the gospel as ethereal and abstract, though true, we might be true in what we're saying, but we're not sharing the full reality of it, it just is not compelling. It's not compelling because the gospel is not compelling. It's not compelling because we're not presenting the full vision of what God is saying. Present the full gospel. Present eternal life as lush, as beautiful, as magnificent, as embodied, as concrete as God does it. Now, if you want some help with that, we have these little trifolds out in the foyer on this little table, and it just says the gospel. And in a few it doesn't take long, but it walks you through the storyline with emphasis towards the kingdom. So use that to help you if you need it. But proclaim the gospel that way. Or on the flip side, maybe you're here this morning, maybe you don't know Jesus, maybe you're not a Christian, and you're, you're here for whatever reason, and we're glad you're here. But maybe you just, like, you hear about this um, God is holy, man is a sinner, and you hear about eternal life, living forever, and it's like, well, that sounds boring. And, uh, you know, the, the cloud thing and the harp, it's just weird. Well, friend, I have good news for you. Eternal life is beyond what you could possibly imagine. Because God is good and generous. He has designed us to be embodied people. And yes, we will die, and our souls will be separated from our body for a time. And yet, if you are in Christ, your body... Uh, your soul and your new body will be re reunited in the resurrection, and you will be perfectly suited to enjoy a holy God, a holy triune God, and a renewed creation in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's designed, that picture and that vision is designed to make your mouth water. That is the goodness of the good news, enjoying God for all eternity, never coming to the end of enjoying him, delighting in him, and along with that, delighting in creation, delighting in a lush creation, a renewed creation, a perfect creation, and even those gifts that he gives in that creation are ultimately, if we do it right, enjoying God himself. And so come, come. Repent and trust yourself to Christ. Whatever you might give up, God will pay back a hundredfold. He will give you himself for all eternity. And then along with that, as Christians, if you've repented and entrusted yourself to Christ, do you look forward to the reward, the payback, the payoff? I'm using very insulting terms to Christianity because we think of it we're all wrong. Do you look forward to the reward that the Father and the Son will give you for following Jesus and for working and for serving? This, now make it very clear, that reward is not based on your merit. It is based on God's generosity. It is based on God just delighting to give, not your merit. 
Jesus wants us to look forward to this as part of the motivation for sacrificing and doing the hard thing now because the payoff in the end is very great. And that brings great comfort. Because if you're following Jesus, you know it's hard. It's difficult. There is much you have to give up now. Time, effort, resources, energy, um, fighting sin, all of it. But if you keep in mind God's generosity, it brings you great comfort in all of those things. And if you're still not convinced, and if you discount that and say, well, God's not going to reward me, that smacks of works. May I suggest to you, as the following parable will unfold, that it's because you are still operating by the principle of more work equals more reward rather than looking to God's generosity. See, it may sound good to say, well, God's not going to reward me. But the reason you're probably thinking that is because you're still thinking that reward could only come from your merit, from your actions, from your ranking. And that is not at all what um, what Jesus is talking about when he talks about reward. And let's see that in the next section. We move from 1930 to 2016, and the main idea is this. Focus on the Father's goodness not human rankings. Focus on the Father's goodness, not human ranking. Look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, let's be honest. What in the world does that mean? Like, I mean, I've read that multiple, multiple times in my Christian life, and I've struggled over what does that mean, and how does it connect with what Jesus is saying? Well, here is where reading in context helps, and here's where chapter divisions don't help us a whole ton, because they decided to put a chapter division right there, but you will notice if you fast forward to 20, verse 16, what does it say? So the last will be first, and the first last. What is that telling you? It's telling you verse 30 belongs with 2016. And it tells you that the parable in between is explaining what Jesus is trying to articulate or what he is articulating in verse 30. But let's just take, before we jump into the parable, because the parable will define what this means in verse 30, let's, let's just, let's just um, think about what we already know or can discern from the context. Now, go back to Peter's question. Go back to Peter's question um, in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, in reply to what? Uh, the rich young guy and what Jesus had said to him. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, P- uh, Jesus does not rebuke Peter for looking for a reward. In fact, he tells him, here's what you're going to get. But there is still a problem in how Peter is thinking. Because what is Peter doing? He's looking at himself and the 12, and he's saying, well, we did what uh, Jesus called the the rich young ruler to do. So what is he doing? He's automatically comparing the 12 with the rich young guy. He's automatically comparing the 12 with the rich young guy. And um, what is Peter operating? What's the logic he's operating under? Well, we did what was right, Therefore, what will we get? The what we get part is not wrong. The logic that Peter is operating by is wrong. And that's what, Peter, or that's what Jesus is going to address. But, so now uh, Jesus has affirmed in verses 
uh, 27 through 29, Peter, Jesus has affirmed, yeah, you're going to get reward. But there's still some logic we need to correct. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, what do the last and first mean? Well, let's read the parable to find out. Because notice in chapter 20, verse 1, again, the chapter division does not help us here. How does chapter 20, verse 1 start? Or, which is a little conjunction that tells us that what Jesus is about to articulate supports what he just said in verse 30. And as you read the parable, you discern and understand who the last and the first are. Okay, so let's go ahead and continue on and see what Jesus is articulating in this parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Okay, so we've seen this language before multiple times in Matthew. What is this? This is uh, Jesus drawing a comparison between some reality of the future kingdom and how it operates uh, with a situation, not just an individual, but a situation in the parable. So even though he says the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, it's not the comparison isn't ultimately between the kingdom of heaven and the master. It's between the whole situation that's described in the parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house or a landowner. That's a fair way to render it. A landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, early in the morning, uh, the workday started basically at 6 a.m. and went to 6 p.m. You find that as you walk through the parable. So he's probably at around 6 a.m., maybe a little bit before, and he's trying to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, let's think about the just the, the, the cultural setting a little bit. Uh, vineyards were a big source of income, uh, a big crop for Israel. And usually when you had a high-yield vineyard, you're a wealthy landowner who has this vineyard, and, um, and, and, and it would get busier at some times than another, right? So you have your normal workers, but maybe during harvest time, you have to get the grapes in before they ferment and all of that, uh, so you need some extra laborers. We're not told that this is at harvest time, but it could be that it's during harvest time. And so you would go to the local labor-ready, uh, a.k.a. the village square, and you would find day laborers. Now, what's interesting about day laborers, day laborers were, uh, had a precarious economic existence. Kind of the same thing with those who go to labor writing, right? Like you get a, a, a day's work or some, maybe a couple weeks work and you get paid, and then, but you're not secured for the next day. And so being a day laborer was a precarious existence. Uh, you had what you had for the day, and maybe that was just enough to buy the bread for the day. Um, so this guy goes out to hire laborers for his vineyard. Verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now let's think about this for a minute. First, uh, he's establishing a contract, isn't he? He's establishing a contract for these early laborers. The contract is you get a denarius for a day, which a denarius was the average day wage for a laborer. So it's the average wage, it's a fair wage, uh, and he's going to contract with them to, to pay it. Now let's think about another thing. If you're the master of a vineyard and you know what kind of work you need done, and you're going out and it's like, wow, there's a lot of work to be done today, you're probably going to hire enough people that first, uh, that first round 
to get what you need, aren't you? Otherwise, you don't know what's going on in your vineyard, which doesn't seem to make sense. So it's likely, uh, it's not said explicitly, but it's likely that this guy hires enough people at the first to do what needs to be done. Okay? Uh, Now it's important for how the story unfolds. Verse 3. So he hires these people, he agrees with the denarius a day, and then then what happens? And Verse 3, and going out about the third hour. Now, time is measured, uh, daytime is measured from 6 a.m. So 6 a.m. is zero hour, and uh, the hour three, third hour is 9 a.m. So he goes out about 9 a.m., and he saw... Doesn't say he was going out. Doesn't explain to us why he was going out. It just said, it's more like he happened to see others standing unemployed. It's not idle, like they're lazy. They're just unemployed in the marketplace. So for whatever reason, this guy's going out again, and he just happens to see more people that are unemployed, more day laborers that are unemployed in the marketplace. And what does he do? This is very surprising. Verse 4. And to them he said... You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Now, like we said, this guy is probably already hired enough at 6 a.m. to do the work for the day. And he just happens to see these guys, and what is moving him to action? Not the need to hire like it was before, but because they're unemployed. He sees them unemployed, and that moves him to say, hey guys, come on. I'll go ahead and send you into the vineyard and notice the difference between hiring the first guys. What does he say? Doesn't contract with them for a denarius a day. What does he say? Whatever is right, I will give you. Now, if you're a laborer, right, and it's 9 a.m., it's three hours of the day, workday are already gone, you know, uh, you have to trust that this fellow who's hiring you is going to give you a decent wage. Whatever is right, So he'll probably reduce the denarius to whatever is proportionally right. But you have to trust that this guy is as good as his word and will give him what is right, what is just. So he does that. Verse 5, so they went, they departed, they went into the vineyard. Going out again, so this is the landowner, he goes out again about the sixth hour, so that's 12, noon. And the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., he did the same, which again is very surprising because this guy probably hired enough uh, initially. So what is he doing? Evidently, he just he's seeing more people unemployed, and because he sees them unemployed, he is generous. He's doing what is not necessary, but he is hiring them, and he's saying to them, all right, um, 12 p.m. guys, uh, 3 p.m. guys, whatever's right, I'm going to give to you. And so they go out. Verse 6. Now, here's what's really interesting. And about the 11th hour, now what time are we talking about? 5 p.m. Workday stops at 6. 11th hour. And it's actually fronted in the original text. It's drawing emphasis to the fact, this is the 11th hour. And more than that, he breaks his own pattern, doesn't he? This guy's been going out every three hours. So he goes out at 9 a.m., he goes out at 12, he goes out at 3 But then he goes out, he breaks his own pattern, and he goes out at 11. He went out and found others standing. And he said to them, 
why have you stood here unemployed all day? Like, this is surprising to him. Like, why are you guys here? Why are you unemployed all day? Verse 7, and, and this is highlighted in the original as surprising. They said to him, because no one has hired us. And there's a little bit of emphasis in the original on no one. Now, if these guys have been standing around all day, and they say no one has hired us, it's not because there was no one available. Obviously, the, the, this guy was going around and hiring people. So why would you not hire these particular people uh, if they were available? Maybe because they're bottom-of-the-barrel workers. It's not said that explicitly, but the picture is this is the last hour of the day. These guys are last for whatever reason. Uh, maybe they're bottom-of-the-barrel workers. They're not very good workers, and people know that. It's the last hour of the day. And say, well, no one hired us. What does the landowner do? He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Now, what's different about what he said versus the other hires? Doesn't contract them for any wage. Doesn't even say, I'll give you what's right. He just says, go. Go into the vineyard. So even more with these 11th hour hires, it's more like, well, you want some work? Just go, go, go do some work. No promise of a wage at all. They probably expect a pittance, but it's at least it's a little bit better to do some work than not. And so they do, evidently do do, because we encounter them later. And here we get the turn. Verse 8, and when evening came, so now it's 6 p.m., it's quitting time. The owner of the vineyard, the landowner, the master of the vineyard, the master of the vineyard said to his foreman, the foreman's just the guy that's organizing, been organizing the labor all day, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And here's where, for the first time in the parable, we hear the words first and last. And what Jesus is doing is he's setting us up to connect what he said in verse 30 of chapter 19 with what's about to happen with the payout process, okay? When those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. They worked one hour, and they, you know, we're not told what their expectations were. We're not told uh, you, uh, if they were surprised, but this is extraordinarily generous, uh, you go work in the vineyard, you worked an hour, you worked in the cool of the day, not in the heat of the day, and they get a denarius. Now, think about how this is going to work, right? So, you, you know, you got the foreman, and he's paying out wages, but you're starting with the last, the last hires, the 11th hour hires, and working back, you know, um, ninth hour, sixth hour, third hour, all the way back to zero hour hires, so the way this works is the zero-hour guys, the 6 a.m. guys, are standing in the back of the line, and everyone else, too. They're standing farther back in line, and they're watching the payouts. They're watching the payouts. So everyone sees that the, 11 hour, the 11th hour guys, they get paid a whole day's wage. Verse 10, now when those hired first, so the 6 a.m. guys, came, they thought they would receive more. Now, why would you think that? Uh, because of the principle, you work more, you get paid more. 
right? So they, you know, they had contracted for a denarius for the day, and they expect to get that, but maybe they're like, oh, maybe he's going to give a bonus. Maybe he's going to give a bonus because we worked hard. We worked all day, right? And if you work more, you get paid more. They thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Everyone received a denarius. And on receiving it, so we're talking about the 11th hour guys still, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. They grumbled against the master of the house, the landowner. Now, think, put yourself in their shoes. And actually, maybe you've been in a situation like this. You ever been in a situation where you've worked at a job for multiple, multiple years? You put in sweat and blood and toil, and then they have a new hire, and the new hire gets paid the exact same wage that you've spent years building up to? You ever had that experience? How do you feel? Worthless. Why? Because the more you work, the more you get. And so you can kind of understand and appreciate why these guys would start grumbling. And ask yourself, would, would you grumble? And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. And it's not just they grumbling against it. Against it. It's not like they get their wage and they like mutter under their breath and they go away. They, they confront. They confront the landowner. What do they do? Verse 12, saying... These last, now notice the words last and first, right? Jesus is highlighting these. These last worked only one hour. And you made them equal to us. Who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. What's their beef? Well, if you operate by the principle, the more, the more you work, the more pay you get. Right? Then... You just, you, these people play, they were in the cool of the day, they only worked an hour, and you made them equal to us. Where's the focus? The focus is on what each person did. The more you work, the more pay you get. Now, we think that seems kind of just. Like, if you operate by that logic, I mean, it's like, yeah, this seems like a legitimate beef. I'm sure we would all have, if we've grumbled in our hearts against a similar situation, because we operate by that same logic. What happens? Verse 13. But he, this is the landowner now, replied to one of them. Now, isn't that interesting? Why does he reply to only one? Isn't that weird? Like, you got a bunch of grumblers, right? He hired a bunch of uh, 6 a.m. guys, uh, but he only replies to one of them. I find that very interesting. Now, let's think about the greater context. And evidently, this one, this, this one, he's supposed to be representative for all the 6 a.m. people. Have we seen anywhere in context where one person stands as a representative for a whole group? Peter. Peter. So already we're getting a hint here that Jesus is speaking against Peter's logic and thoughts from before. Nonetheless, but he replied to one of them, friend? Now, this is a polite way to address someone uh, when you're the superior and they're an inferior. And it's not necessarily negative, but it is a little bit distant. Okay? Friend, I am doing you no wrong. I'm doing you no injustice. Did you not agree with me for denarius? 
guy has to answer yes. They contracted. They contracted. There was an agreement, an explicit agreement at 6 a.m. for a denarius for the day's work. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Yes. Verse 14, take what belongs to you and go. Take what belongs to you and go. But I am wanting to the last, this last one, to give as also, as also to you. In other words, what is the motivation of the landowner? The motivation of the landowner is he wants to. He wants to. I want to give to the last, this last one, as I also gave to you. And then he goes on further. 15. Am I not allowed to do what I, uh, to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Of course he is. He's right. He's the one with the money. He's the one with the work. He gets to do what he wants with what belongs to him. And then this last phrase, literally here's how it reads. Or is your eye evil because I am good? It doesn't actually read generous. It reads good. They're, the interpreters have just said, well, by good here, he probably means generous. And that's definitely in context. But is your eye evil because I am good? Now, we talked about the evil eye in Matthew. I don't know if you remember. It's been a while now. But back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the evil eye. And what we said is there is the evil eye is um, not some strange glare that your wife gives you. The evil eye is jealousy. It is greedy and jealous. And so what is going on here is this fellow, this grumbler's eye is evil. In other words, he's greedy and jealous against the guy who got a full day's wage for one hour's work. Well, I would have liked to work one hour and got a full day's wage. He's greedy and he's jealous. And why? Because the landowner, and the landowner identifies himself, I am good. Again, this reveals the motivation of the landowner. He wanted to because he's good. He's wanted to because he is good. Looked at from the perspective of the workers, their logic is the more you work, the more you get. But the logic here of the landowner is I'm good and I'm generous and I chose to. And so what is Jesus doing with this? We see in verse 16 the refrain that closes it off, bookends it with chapter 19, verse 30. So the last will be first and the first last. Now we're in a position to identify who are the first and who are the last. The first... The category of first corresponds to those who operate with the principle of reward based on comparative human rank and effort. I mean, that's how we rank people from a human perspective, isn't it? Comparative worth, effort, we rank people that way. So the first are guys like Peter. Remember the one that the landowner's addressing that are operating with the logic, the principle of reward based on comparative human rank or effort. 
The last, the 11th hour people, correspond to those who do not rank highly at a human comparison level, but depend on God's generosity and goodness. All the intermediate hires from the third hour on, they had to rely on the generosity and the goodness of the landowner, especially the 11th hour guys. What is Jesus doing? I mean, if we were to draw correspondences in the parable, uh, the landowner is God. The payout is the judgment. Uh, The vineyard is a common metaphor uh, for talking about God's kingdom, specifically Israel normally. But what's he doing? He's attacking Peter's logic that got him to ask the question in 1927 to begin with. Peter was operating by, well, look at this rich young guy. He didn't do what you told us to do, but we did. And based on what we did in comparison with him, what are we going to get? Jesus says, yeah, you're going to get something, but it's not because of your effort in comparison with others. You're going to get something because of the generosity of the Father. Jesus is pushing the disciples to not relate to the Father and the reward he gives in terms of computational contract, but in terms of trusting the Father to give what is right and generous. Yes, the Father will give a reward, but you don't by that, rank yourself against your brothers and sisters, your fellow disciples, and say, well, I did more than this person, so I'm going to get more reward, and I did less than this person, I'm not going to get as much. You don't look at others at all. You just look at the generosity of the Father. It is God's generosity that grants eternal life to begin with, 1926. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are are possible. And it's God's generosity that grants reward for service. So how do we apply it? Where are you ranking yourself in comparison with other Christians? We do this. I mean, we do, right? I'm a better servant than that person. I do more work than that person. God owes me more because I did more work, and God's going to give me more reward in the future. We do this. So where are you doing it? And speak by the Spirit's help to stop and to do what? There's a replacement. Focus on God's generosity to others and to you. Here's another way to think about it. When you see, in whatever way, you see God's generosity and goodness toward other fellow believers, do you rejoice or are you jealous? See, if you're jealous, you have that evil eye, that stingy eye, and you're operating by that principle. More work means more reward. But Jesus' point is, get your eyes off of comparing yourself with others to begin with. That's not the logic. The logic is the Father's generosity and goodness. Do you depend on your own effort or on God's goodness? Now, you carry that to an extreme. If you depend on your own effort, period, then that's what we call a legalist. That's what we call one that's totally self-reliant, like the rich young guy that just left. And you're going to be left empty and disappointed. And if you're not depending on God's grace at all, you're outside of Christ. Because it's only through God's generosity that there is salvation to begin with. But even if you're a believer, as believers, we slip into this performance treadmill 
It's a phrase that my, my dad and uh, one of his mentors used, this performance treadmill where my effort means I get more. If I do more stuff, I'm going to be rewarded by God more. If I do more quiet times, God's going to bless me more. If I uh, serve more, God's going to bless me more. If I... And then you're locked into this performance treadmill in comparing yourself with others rather than depending on the Father's generosity and goodness. And that's what you need to focus on. Get to work, yes. Now notice, in the parable, uh, the assumption is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're working. And you're working hard. Uh, That is very clear. Good works are not a dirty word. In fact, um, Jesus um, says in Titus 2, uh, Jesus procured for himself a people so that they might be zealous for good works. So work hard, but focus on the Father's goodness and generosity. You're tunnel-visioned on that. You're not comparing yourself with others. Are you at work as a follower of Jesus? Get to work making disciples. Get to work in the vineyard, but focusing on the generosity of a good father. As followers of Jesus, look forward to your reward in the renewed creation. Let that drive you forward, the reward, the kingdom that you're going to inherit, but do so focusing on the Father's goodness, not human ranking. Let's pray. Father, you are good, beyond generous, uh, Lord, with us in saving us to begin with and then putting us to work in your kingdom, in the service of your kingdom, and then giving reward on top of inheriting eternal life. It would be enough to merely enter the kingdom, let alone that you give a reward for following Jesus. That is amazing. Lord, because we know it is based on your generosity and not on our merit. Thank you, Lord God, for being a good and generous God. Lord, help us to be tunnel-focused on that reality. Help us not to rank ourselves with one another, but merely to work, dependent on your goodness, because we love you. Lord, we ask for the grace to do so. We ask for the grace to not slip into a performance mindset, but to work out of joy because of who you are. We ask these things and pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen.